This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's uh, bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, uh, rossmcleansecurity.com to find out more and get a Musitano update. Police have found uh, the car they believe used in this murder. What does this mean and uh, how do we move forward from here? Hello, Ross. How are you today? Doing good, Scott. Doing good. So tell us your thoughts. What is this, uh, first of all, surprised that they found this car and surprised at where we are today? Well, if anything, it points to what we discussed last time and certainly what most people are thinking, that this certainly was a targeted, planned uh, mafia hit that was uh, well thought out, well looked at. Uh, the police, as you say, have uh, released some video that, that shows the suspect car, a 2006 Ford Fusion uh, four-door with rusty rims, and they found it you know, just a block or so away on Fenton Drive, uh, 7 o'clock that night, the shooting taking place around 4 o'clock. So it certainly shows that there was forethought planning, uh, that the vehicle was used to drop off, likely to take another vehicle to make the getaway. So the police are going to be working all the leads that they can get from uh, the video and that car. What would they be able to find from this car? What are they looking for? Well, you're always hoping for uh, certain things, such as mistakes, uh, somebody who left a cigarette butt in an ashtray or something, or maybe a can they took a drink out of, or... uh, you know, uh, a lazy fingerprint left somewhere. Aside from the forensics on the inside of the car, looking at everything, once again, for hairs, you can find even hairs. We know all this from going back to, of course, the famous O.J. Simpson trial. There's lots of evidence you can find uh, within cars. But they'll also be tracing the history of this car to see uh, if the car was stolen, where it was taken from, who last had it, who is it registered to, uh, and all of those issues. And that can also perhaps lead to, to other clues. And obviously, they would already have a great deal of that information, certainly of where the car originated by now, would they not? They would, but you still have to track it down. You still have to get on the ground, go to the place, go to the scene where that car was, talk to the people, see if there was maybe good uh, good evidence or maybe CCTV of when that car was taken, the person was there. You're looking for somebody being sloppy uh, with doing things, and there's still possibility of other CCTV uh, within the area that the police may or may not be releasing. You know, the home, home video surveillance can, can be quite sophisticated these days, and it's getting more sophisticated all the times. So we'll have to see what else comes up that they have. Of course, the police aren't going to tell us too much. They're going to be working closely with the OPP, uh, Organized Crime uh, Squad, and uh, the RCMP, and if necessary, uh, the U.S. too. Uh, why are police telling us this? Well, they're looking for just other information about uh, the, the tract beforehand. And, and everything they know beforehand helps them to go lead to track down that, that information. For instance, if someone says that they'd noticed the car wasn't there at this time, it was there at this time, that helps to just give them a little bit more. What you're always doing, uh, Scott, in crimes is you're creating a timeline uh, of distances, times, places, and things. Uh, and that is something that's solid. That's not subjective. It's very much an objective thing, and you build your case around that. So uh, now we find out that they're obviously looking for a second car, uh, some sort of uh, whatever happened when these two cars met. Again, I'm sure a surveillance camera will come into play here as well. Quite possibly. And was it another car left? Was there someone else there to pick somebody up? Of course, this is the other thing that takes place when you have crimes, is the more people involved, the more people can talk. And the more people can talk, the better chance police have at working things and finding angles. You know, you, you'll, you'll find out from your second guess that, 
uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these great criminals, these so-called mafia criminals, are not so much that smart, and they they make their mistakes, and they have their problems too. They've become more and more sophisticated, but uh, trust me, they also make mistakes. So, uh, are the police at this point still looking for information from the public? I mean, is that the reasoning behind this as well, just to see if they can jar people's memories or, you know, like they say, that little piece of evidence? Yeah, because we were still looking as to what the motivation for this was. You know, typically with the mob, it's about business. It's not about personal. Yes, there is payback. But was there some other deals? Are there some other deals going on? Have Did the OPP perhaps pick up other chatter from other organized crime people before this went down? Was there information about a beef? So they'll, be, they'll, they'll have to bring a lot of different resources together and people who have worked on this. But as we know, the police have gotten better and better and better with their major case operating systems of communicating and getting the information together. But they, of course, also have to keep their work secret because uh, the bad guys... That's what they try and get people in to find out what intelligence the police have as well, too. And they have their operatives who try to get in and work within the criminal justice system. Uh, do we know of any repercussions within organized crime as a result of this? Is there have been any chatter as to what the next move is or how this has affected organized crime? Not, not that I've heard, but one of the things just anecdotally I'll say I've noticed over the last number of years, five years or so, when we've had many of these different mob-type hits, it's amazing how many of the players have actually come from different cities across Canada, where they've just moved from Vancouver to Toronto, per se, or from Toronto to Hamilton, or from Montreal to Hamilton. So there seems to be a, you know, a fair bit of uh, people moving about from the hitmen to the victims and the reasons that follow them. So we'll have to, the, the police will be looking across the country, and say, uh, perhaps across North America, to see what the story is here. Uh, we, we talked about this before. Uh, obviously, uh, there was lots of uh, this sort of activity in decades past. It seemed to subside for a while. Is this sort of activity coming back? Is there a resurgent here, resurgence here within this organization? Well, organized crime, uh, you know, just like in the movie The Godfathers, the sequences have gone on. They have moved steadily upstream into corporations and running things. And uh, as I say, the mob, they, they, they will take people and put them through law school. They will take people and put them through medical school. So they have their own doctors. They will have their own lawyers. They will have their own corporations set up. Uh, there, there's lots that they have on the go. And uh, they're not adverse to getting involved in, in, on Bay Street uh, with corporate companies and manipulating and moving around markets as they need to there. So uh, there's definitely a very tangled web to this. And just because we don't see a lot of it, uh, that the smart bikers, they want it, I'm sorry, mobsters, they want it that way where there isn't a whole lot in the newspapers. They don't like to be in the newspapers. Uh, surprised that this was so blatant then. No, it's, it's, it's typical of, uh, of, of mob hits. We've seen a couple of them this way where they just, someone just walks up to them, uh, pumps a number of shots into them at close range. But especially in a residential area? Yeah, no. I mean, this is going to obviously generate attention. Yeah, no, we, we, we have had a bunch of them in, in Toronto uh, even and in the New York region. Uh, it's not unusual. This is the way that it's done. 
typically they, they'll have a, a hitman who will wear something. This guy is dressed all in black, but sometimes if it's in a more busy area, they'll wear something like an orange construction vest or a, or a hat with a big thing in it. So all the witnesses will remember is the hat mm-hmm. or the vest or some such thing. They're not really looking closely at the person. They fire the shots. They make sure that the person is dead by putting enough into them. And then they have a plan to leave and go. So it's very much a typical uh, mob hit. And they, they do typically take place at their homes or at their places where they work or if they happen to have a, a local social club where they're at all the time. That's where they're usually targeted at. So this, this very much fits the mold, Scott. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much, uh, much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Ross. Uh, let's bring in Antonio Nicasso. He is a journalist and author of many books on this subject, and he is with us now. Hello, Antonio. How are you today? Hi, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, in this uh, case of Angelo Musitano, uh, many close to him said that uh, he had left uh, that business. Uh, can you ever leave this? No, uh, I don't believe uh, because uh, uh, the mafia is a, a lifetime uh, uh, commitment. Uh, he acknowledged uh, in his uh, uh, in his book that he was born into a family associated with uh, organized crime. The mafia that I know, the Ndrangheta, uh, it's a, a road of uh, no return unless uh, someone. Uh, been killed or decide to enter a witness uh, protection uh, program. So when someone like this says they left, is, is that just to make it look that way, or do they actually try, or if they were trying, they would have disappeared? Uh, that's uh, sometimes uh, uh, there are people uh, that try to uh, change uh, their life and move on with their life, uh, but. Uh, uh, I don't think there is uh, uh, such a thing in that kind of uh, world. I spoke with uh, so many informants, uh, so many former mobsters in the witness protection program, uh, both in Canada and United States, but also in Italy. And they told me that uh, uh, there is no retirement. When you enter into uh, the mafia, into the Ndrangheta, uh, there is no way that uh, you can exit and retire or do whatever you want. People told me that uh, even if you are uh, old uh, and sick, you have to be available. That doesn't mean you have to be active, uh, but uh, but if they need you, you have to be available. What do you think happened here with this case? But it's very difficult uh, to understand the the, the, the reason. Uh, but uh, to me, it's uh, uh, it's uh, in the underworld. Whatever goes around comes around, and practically it may be a retribution for uh, his uh, uh, previous uh, crime. He uh, was uh, um, a criminal larger than life at one point, because uh, even uh, if he was uh, um, uh, not well known uh, outside of Hamilton, he and his brothers uh, decide to join forces with the Rizzuto. When the Rizzuto um, made the, that important decision to cut the link with the Americans in order to manage their own business, and that was 
the first time in Canada when we saw someone capable to cut the link with the Bonanno and to expand his influence outside of Quebec and move on in Ontario. The, the Musitano joined forces and mastermind the murder of the two major of two major uh, mafia bosses in the area, Johnny Papalia and Carmen Barillaro. Uh, of course, uh, then uh, they bargaining down the sentence. Uh, they uh, receive a, a sentence only for the, their uh, involvement in the Carmen Barillaro murder. The Crown dropped the charge for the. Papalia murder, but this is irrelevant in, 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 for people who live and operate in, in, in that type of world. Will we ever know who did it? Will we ever know the reason? Yeah, we know that uh, uh, Kenneth Murdoch uh, turned as informant, and he practically uh, shared his knowledge about the two uh, uh, murders with uh, with the police. So we know practically everything. From uh, intelligence reports, we learn that uh, right after the murder, the two brothers sat down with the Rizzuto to discuss the possible strategic alliance, uh, and that was uh, filmed on tape by by the York Region Police and the Toronto Police. So practically we know that uh, there was a, a, a strategy, and we know now that Canada is... Um, undergoing uh, a mafia war that uh, may rewrite the geography of the power in Quebec and in Ontario. The Rizzuto are not uh, powerful and strong like they used to be, and practically this may be the time of the retribution for all the people who join the Rizzuto at that time uh, and, and turning, back, uh, turning their back to friends and neighbors. Mm. Um, Antonio, in the old days, no one ever talked. You know, you did your time, you came out, whatever. Why now? But I, I think this is another myth, because if you see in the history of, uh, of the Mafia, there have been informants in the 1800s, in the 1900s, many people, especially, for example, in the Mafia, in the Sicilian Mafia, decided to turn as informant after the massacre in Italy uh, of Palermo, when two magistrates were killed by the, the Sicilian Cosa Nostra. It's a little bit harder in Dendrangheta, and I agree with you, because Dendrangheta is a criminal organization based on blood ties. They are all relative, and it's very difficult to uh, betray uh, your own blood. And for that reason, in Dendrangheta, historically, uh, there have been less uh, lesser informant than the Sicilian Mafia. Antonio Nicasso has been with us, journalist and author of many books on, uh, on the Mafia. Antonio, website we can go to to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, it's not updated any longer, but I teach history, uh, social history of organized crime at Queen's University and uh, history of the Mafia in California. So I'm, I'm all, over, all over the place right now. 
but uh, uh, very happy to be back in uh, in in Canada and uh, and sometime I have the opportunity to follow uh, the situation in Canada. Antonio Nicasso, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My my pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Sally Yates providing testimony yesterday that uh, she had warned the White House that uh, Michael Flynn could be vulnerable to blackmail from Russia. Uh, Trump did not initially act on this warning, which uh, I I guess uh, even there's uh, chatter that uh, Barack Obama in his first meeting with Donald Trump had uh, brought this up. Instead, waiting for it to be reported by the Washington Post uh, to respond. And now, of course, uh, her testimony is coming up wondering, and leaves everybody wondering exactly what Trump knew and exactly when he knew it. To talk more about all of this, George Breckenridge is with us, retired political science professor, McMaster University. Hello, George. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it when you do. Uh, mm-hmm. to, the, to some that may not be following this uh, story, uh, give us a little uh, history of it and why this is important, why this testimony is important. Yeah, well, Sally Yates was the uh, as a career, you know, civil servant originally, but she was promoted up into um, acting attorney general because the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, had not yet been confirmed. So she very briefly was promoted right up into the top position in the Justice Department, and in that position, she got information, and and the FBI, you see, is part of the Justice Department. So she got information um, which um, indicated that uh, Michael Flynn, who was appointed, who was one of the first appointments by the Trump administration, this was just you know days after he was inaugurated, had lied to uh, the vice president um, when he had denied that he had talked to the Russian ambassador <laughs> about Amer- about the sanctions that that Obama had put on had, had put on had tightened really on the Russians after it was discovered they were interfering in the election, and Flynn denied that he had talked to the ambassador about sanctions, you know maybe promising that when Trump became president you know he would remove the sanctions. Um, and the, the reason they knew that was because the uh, the Russian ambassador's phone conversations are routinely, you know, recorded, <laughs> listened into by the FBI. I mean, surely everybody would understand that. And so they knew that he was not telling the truth. And so she felt it was important to warn the Trump administration that the guy they had appointed as national security advisor of the, the, it's the most sensitive possible position in the White House, because the, the National Security Advisor is the chief conduit of information from, collects information from the State Department and the Defense Department and the CIA and everything else, and, and collects that and sort of feeds that to the president. So it's a very, very sensitive position, and she says she felt that it, they, they needed to know that he, because he had lied to the vice president, and presumably to other uh, Trump officials, he had put himself in a compromised position with relation to the Russians. And the Russians knew he had lied, obviously, because the ambassador <laughs> told them that, that they had discussed that. And she sa- as she said, you know, obviously you don't want your national security advisor to be in a compromised position with the Russians, because obviously, you know, they that very likely that they would use that to uh, influence his behavior, and therefore the president's behavior. So what was Trump's response? 
Well, Trump went ahead anyway. They did, they ignored the information. She went. She reported to the uh, Trump's lawyer, the White House counsel, who's the chief lawyer in the White House, and she was the one he talked to, and he presumably told the president that would be his responsibility, and it was ignored. Now it also turns out we've learned yesterday that um, President Obama, when he had a talk with um, Trump, you know, after, after just before Trump was inaugurated advised him against appointing Flynn. Um, but the the story is that Trump thought this was just sour grapes <laughs> because Hillary had lost and so they ignored it. So they obviously ignored that. Advice. Don't worry about that top secret information. It's just sour grapes. That's right. That's right. You know. <laughs> um, so uh, Trump's reasoning behind this is, well, you know, Obama approved the guy. Obama gave him clearance. What's yeah. that story? Well, that's routine security and clearance. And he simply, when he left the military, when about a couple of years before, when he was, he ended up as, um, he had a very distinguished career, apparently, as a military um, uh, intelligence, in, in, in military intelligence. And uh, he ended up head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the Pentagon intelligence branch. So that's how he would have got the clearance. Well, that's right. Yeah. That, that's right. So that's a very sensitive position. But he was fired from that position or removed from that position early by the Obama administration, apparently simply because he didn't have good management skills. That was the story. So the people who know Flynn, uh, who were his colleagues in the military, are very mystified as to what happened after that, why he went rogue, you know, he and dealing with the Russians, taking money from the Russians, sitting next to Putin <laughs> at a dinner, and uh, and taking money from Turkey, which a lot of people think was laundered Russian money, and and campaign was one of the most vicious campaigners against Hillary Clinton. And people said, what? Is this, this isn't the guy we knew, you know. So it was very, very strange. And he obviously was talking to the Russian ambassador, in uh, Kislyak in, in Washington, and apparently talked about sanctions and presumably promised that Trump would, you know, would review the sanctions and probably remove them. And then he de he denied that he had done that. And uh, since obviously that was, you know, that was uh, inappropriate <laughs> for him to be doing that on behalf of Trump. Now, Trump may not have known exactly what was happening, but the obviously the, the information that he had lied and therefore was in a compromised position must have gone to Trump. The, the White House counsel must have told Trump right away. I mean, that would be his job. And Trump ignored it for the next three weeks until it became public, until the Washington Post published a story that he had lied. So somebody was leaking information, and Sally Yates said it certainly wasn't her. Um, somebody leaked the information to the Washington Post, and so once it appeared in the Washington Post, then they fired him. Uh, this obviously part of uh, the hearing on Russian interference in yeah. the in the in the yeah. presidential election campaign. Well, <laughs> even more than that, they, what the, what what the connections between what connections there are between the people around Trump, or maybe even Trump himself and the Russians. So uh, obviously that's why this testimony is going on. Yeah. Why would Trump make hay of this? Why would he just not let it run its course? Well, because it's because it, it as I say, it's not j just about uh, why the Russians interfered in the election by you know by dumping stuff and hacking and everything like that. Because it, there's a lot of suspicion surrounding a lot of the people around Trump who were around Trump in his campaign, and not only Michael Flynn but uh, Paul Manafort, who was briefly his campaign manager for a while, was his campaign manager, 
and a guy called Carter Page, who is in a, now admitted that he was contacted by Russian agents, <laughs> although he says he didn't give them anything. So the, there's and, and the question about how much of Trump's uh, Trump's son Eric some time ago said that the he's the guy in charge of the golf course, all the golf courses that Trump has picked up. Um, said, you know, we we we're, we have none of our financing comes from Wall Street. You know, we can get as much money as we want from Russia. So, and so the so the whole suspicion of why, and of course, it started off in some ways with when Trump said a lot of admiring things about Putin. Right. You know? That so, was my so, that was my next question. Uh, how has that changed things? Because obviously. Uh, at the beginning of the campaign, he talked well. He talked more uh, lovingly towards Russia than he did towards yeah, allies. Absolutely. Yeah. So, is this tightening in on him? I mean, oh, I think so. You see, the the cloud that, that is there is, is not lifted. If anything, it's got worse. And um, you know, with this information about confirming, see, Sally Yates said not only worried about her lying, she said his underlying conduct which she couldn't specify because it involved, you know, classified information. His underlying conduct, which might, for example, mean discussing, you know, sanctions and stuff like that with, with the ambassador, or maybe even more than that, um, uh, was, was cause for concern, in addition to the fact that he was lying about it, you know. So it, it's simply getting stranger and stranger, the story of all these connections with the Russians. Can Flynn's actions be, be tied to Trump? I mean, obviously, Yates was concerned that, yeah. that, uh, that Flynn could be in, in, a, in a compromising right. position. What about Trump himself? Well, Trump said that he, and I, there's no particular reason to disbelieve him on this, Trump said that he didn't know that uh, Flynn had w was talking to the Russian ambassador, but if he had known, he would have approved of it. That's what he said. <laughs> and and, and uh, so, and yeah, there's no reason to believe that Trump knew. I mean, Flynn strikes one as a as a you know as a lone opera, a lone wolf, really, in many respects, in in, in that period and in, in his operation. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Trump told him to do this or knew about it exactly. But when he was informed that this was a problem. And presumably, uh, Sally Yates also talked about what she called his underlying activities, underlying conduct to uh, the White House counsel, which would have been passed on to uh, Trump. And they, they ignored it until it, became, until it came out in the press. So do you think Russia has anything on Trump or he's just sloppy? It, 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 because he's never published his, his tax returns. Um, no, nobody knows for sure, but the suspicion is that he may well have. And I mean, what Eric, what Eric Trump said about the golf courses, that he may well be in hawk. I mean, to not only not not just Russian banks, but to Russian oligarchs, you know, the powerful people around Putin, you know, who have made fortunes around Putin, that he may be, you know, he may be lie, he may have liabilities to some of them for financing his activity, you know, his building activities and, and stuff like that. If he has done that in a previous life, does yeah. that matter? How, or is it well, just, or is well, it just it bad? Is it just the perception? Well, it, it, it's part of the perception, but it also might matter if it was an ongoing obligation. Right. 
See, that's the thing. And, and, and we won't know that if we don't see tax returns. Well, that's right. That would be the final way. And, and I, I, I bet he doesn't dare. You know, the reason he hasn't <laughs> published his tax returns is because he doesn't dare. There's too much stuff that people would jump all over to, to investigate. So you don't, see we'll ever, you don't think we'll ever see tax returns? Well, unless they find some way. No, I don't think he's not going to do it voluntarily. That's for sure. Uh, it, I don't think he dare do it, unless there's some legal way to force him to do it, which is unlikely, I think. No, we'll never get that kind of proof. But again, it's not only what made it the whole thing suspicious, is not only his connections, but the, but the, he had so many people around him who had these weird and compromising connections with the Russians, of all people. Uh, he He constantly uses the excuse he's under audit. Does that matter? Well, the the IRS people say privately that that's got nothing to do with it, that that, that's not a reason why he couldn't release his tax return. Why don't they say that publicly? Well, because they don't want to get involved in politics. So they're a non-political organization. It's important that they stay out of politics. But uh, he says he's he's audited every year. Of course, some people point out, well, why would it be audited every year if there wasn't something fishy going on? But, uh, you know, that's his excuse. But it's not... if that's not plausible at all, I don't think he dares do it because his finances are so complex, and you know, and he's it's known that he has loans from Chinese banks uh, as well. And so, but if he if he's in hawk to Russians or Russian oligarchs uh, on a continuing basis for his finances, then you know that that doesn't look good apart from anything else where is this hearing going do you think george where well there'll be other hearings as well i mean this was this was actually the judiciary consent judiciary committee hearing it wasn't even the intelligence committee hearing the intelligence committees in both houses have had difficulties that are getting going but they're the ones you would expect to be repressing this and what they may do you see sally yates and clapper who was with her um, uh, said numerous times that they couldn't answer certain questions because it was classified. But you can do that in a, in a closed hearing. And so you would expect the intelligence committees to call them back in a closed hearing. And uh, while we wouldn't know exactly what they said, it would affect the reports of these committees um, or for further investigations that these committees to, uh, undertake. But they, they've had a struggle getting... Um, getting bipartisan support for this. And the, uh, the reason why it was possible to have the hearing yesterday in uh, a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee is because um, Senator Graham, from, who's, a, you know, who's a conservative Republican from South Carolina, has been very determined to be nonpartisan about this. He's pretty, he's pretty skeptical about a lot, of the, a lot of the Trump stuff and never really supported him. And so he was the one, as chair of the subcommittee, who held the hearing with the support of the Democrats on the committee. So, so, but most, most of the Republicans are, 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 have not been willing to act in a dispassionate fashion. So uh, the hearings on to interference in the election and, yeah. you know, just with, with the election that happened in France just recently, yeah, we're hearing yeah. the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, what is the objective of this hearing? Will we, I mean, because we pretty much know that, there's, that they're hacking, that they're interfering. Yeah, yeah. Will this link Donald Trump to it or is it better, is this all about protecting the American electoral system? No, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the, the uh, there's some suggestion that, 
uh, some of the people around Trump were in collusion with the Russians on this. But I don't think it needs to be that. I mean, the Russians, as you say, you know, tried to try to do the same tactics on the French election unsuccessfully uh, just a few days ago. Well, the fact that that happened, what does that say about this situation, George, and what happened in the States? Well, it, it says that the Russians are, what, what, you know, what are the Russians up to? They are up to destabilizing and uh, Western democracies. And particularly- then why are we questioning this, George? Why is this even an issue with Trump? Why aren't we, yes, they're the bad guys. They're doing things we should, they shouldn't be doing. Let's go after them for it. Why are we even debating well, because, this? Well, because, because of, the Trump, because of the, these strange connections between the Trump people and Russia, who's doing the hacking. And so it raises questions about, is there, was there collusion? There may not have been collusion directly. But he certainly doesn't do anything to allow us to come to that conclusion, does he? No, no. That's right. So it almost seems like he's making life more dip- difficult for himself. I think he is. Just, by, I, no, just with his mannerisms and how that, he conducts business. I think business. that's exactly right. He, if there was no collusion, he, he may not know himself, you see. He may not know himself what the extent of what Flynn did and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, you would think he would have been told by the, uh, you know, because you can give him classified information. Obviously, um, you would, but you would think if if there was no if there was clearly no collusion between him and his people with the Russian hacking, he would say, you know, he would encourage them to investigate and find that out. But instead of that, he's throwing up, you know, all kinds of obstacles and and trying trying to change the subject and. And saying it's all old news, you know, and all the rest mm. of it. So he's 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 not acting in his own best interest because as long as this these investigations go on, and the, you know nothing is there's no sign of them stopping at this point. Um, it it simply clouds his you know gets in the way of what he's trying to do, you know. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political uh, science professor, McMaster University. George, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. France, a fascinating election over the last week or so. What do voter turnouts tell us about the political situation in France? And, of course, uh, why are people rioting when uh, the winner uh, was awarded 66% of the vote? Talk more about all of this. Dr. Andrew Glencross is with us, senior lecturer, Department of Political uh, Politics rather, and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. He is with us now. Hello, Dr. Andrew Glencross. How are you today? I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Andrew, thank you for joining us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, I'll start with that first question. Why are people uh, rioting if uh, the winner of of the election uh, got 66% of the vote? Because I think there's an underlying tension, an underlying conflict about what kind of representation Macron can make for people who themselves feel excluded. Maybe they didn't vote. Maybe they were one of the 10 million who actually cast a um, spot ballot. And as a result, this president, just because he has that euphoric, in a sense, international coverage, doesn't mean that automatically the problems at home have gone away. Um, Lots of elections are becoming a a vote of anti-establishment, a vote against the status quo. Is that not what happened here? Why are people not excited about this? Well, some people are very excited, but there's a sense also, on the other hand, for some people who think there's a sense of resignation, there's a sense that actually he might be a deceptive character who actually looks like an insider, but in reality 
is an insider, is the insider's insider, given his background. And now we also know that the, well, the outgoing president, Hollande, actually voted it for him already in the first round. So what kind of outsider is that really? So what do we know about Emmanuel Macron? Well, he has a pretty conventional background when it comes to reaching the higher echelons of the French civil service, as well as an important private sector job in banking. What's unconventional is that he created his own party in order basically to distance himself from his socialist party family, which he was um, in originally as a minister in the all-armed presidency. But apart from that, we don't really know what kind of decisions he's prepared to make when in power, because he has no previous electoral elected office. What can he do to change things? Is the problem bigger than he is? He most assuredly would say it's not, and he wants to create an image of optimism, of hope, a bit like Obama was trying to do back in 2008. And what he's trying essentially to do is tweak things, give a little here, take a little there, and create a dynamism for reform that will help France to heal, to help France regain its standing in the EU more generally, and as a result, just to get that uptick, basically. Uh, it seems now we live in a land of extremes. Is he a moderating force? Is he, is he bringing the mainstream together? That's the big hope, and he certainly has talked a lot about centrism, about trying to split the difference between those extremes to try and make those extremes less attractive to voters who feel they have no alternative but to protest, as you were saying, against the system in that more extreme fashion. The question is, can you still get radical change through whilst being a moderate? That's not obvious. Uh, talk about Le Pen and, uh, you know, obviously a loss in this, but still gets to form opposition. Is this a victory for them either way? There's a sense that that's true because there's momentum. You think about how she basically doubled the percentage of votes compared to when her father was in the second round back in 2002. The momentum historically then seems to be with her. But then there's the question of, well, can she get enough seats in Parliament, in the June parliamentary elections, to be really the focal point of the opposition? Does she face challenges, as seems likely, within her own party for someone who might be a different name because the Le Pen brand itself might be what's still putting off a lot of voters? So her position is by no means secure within her party or within the opposition movement generally. Can you see her gaining ground in France? I can see some of the ideas she represents and the desire to paint the system as corrupt and ill-prepared to actually deal with France's real problems. Whether she will ride that to victory one day, I think is much less certain. I think maybe the momentum for those ideas is going to actually continue beyond her own political career. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, uh, lots of this trend, uh, the Brexit vote, what happened in the U.S. with, with Trump. Uh, this was sort of a litmus test for Europe to see where everybody's head was and whether this populist movement was going to continue. What does it say to the rest of the world that France voted the way it did? It sends out 
a message. It sends out a message about the status quo. It sends out a message about free trade, moderation, nothing extreme coming out in the EU's policies. But at the same time, is Europe really going to have that much of a say in international affairs? Take the Syrian conflict. Take, for instance, international climate change agreements where Trump is going to have a large say on whether or not that actually goes ahead on a global level. It might be a nice story for Europe, but maybe the actual impact globally will be less than it's currently presented in the aftermath of the victory. What about France's standing within the EU? How does that change things, or does it? It could well do, because dynamism in France is the key to basically re-energizing France's position vis-à-vis Germany as the two leading powers in Europe now that Brexit is well underway. But there are a lot of question marks about the ability to get change passed in the Parliament to avoid protests in the streets that the French are obviously notorious for when they find policies being introduced that they don't like. So as a result, there are also a lot of open questions there. Did France learn from the UK's Brexit vote? It's tempting to say that people have been put off in Europe generally at the extreme idea, the untested idea of leaving the EU because it seems as if the UK has really isolated itself there. The rest of the EU has come up with a consensus, unified position quite easily. It's quite cohesive. But as a result, it doesn't look like, as Le Pen originally hoped for, that there was any momentum for her ideas on the basis of Brexit. The domino theory that Brexit was first, then maybe the Netherlands or France would come after, hasn't materialized at all. Quite the contrary. So does that does that signal the pendulum swinging back? I mean, there was chatter a while ago that the, that the EU could splinter, and after Brexit, and, and who knows what's going to happen next. Does this does this show that the EU is tight and that they are committed, and that perhaps the thoughts of voters are the pendulum has swung too far, and perhaps it needs to come back a bit? I would agree with that analysis, but I'd also caution you to remember that perhaps voters remain quite fickle about things to do with Europe. They see their own national interests first. And if they suddenly think that Europe isn't serving those interests, the pendulum could swing back again quite quickly. Uh, What about those that abstain from voting? The numbers? They abstained in relatively large numbers by French standards. And as a result, that leaves the question of what do they want? What do they want from this presidency? It seems as if they don't want Macron and they don't want Le Pen either. So what will they vote for in the parliamentary elections? How will they respond if they're members of a trade union, other forms of civil society organizations, when Macron tries to introduce changes? We don't know, but we can be certain that maybe there isn't the kind of unanimity consensus behind Macron that is 66%, 65% seems to suggest. The abstention rate, 22% in the first round, 25 by the second, uh, that's still pretty high, or still pretty low. I mean, there's still a lot of people turning out, certainly by North American standards. Definitely by those standards. When it comes to French presidential elections traditionally, that's 
on the low side, and we can see that from voters who would have voted for a centre-right candidate in the first round, a lot of those disappeared off the radar. So what their position is going to be, what the position of the centre-right parties is going to be vis-à-vis the new president, that's something that could affect his ability to introduce change if it doesn't coincide with their interests and their preferences. How does Le Pen move forward? What does she have to do here? She has to rethink her ability to get a majority in the second round. Her ideas about leaving the euro probably scared off a lot of older voters who are worried about their savings, worried about their pensions. So I think she needs to rethink most clearly her economic strategy because that was where she wasn't able to attract voters. Will she ever be able to uh, leave uh, people's past perception of her and the party that once was? If you see the amount of youth participation, youth voting for the National Front in France, you get the feeling that that change has already materialized. So on that basis, it's a question then of how far amongst young people can she actually still reach out? Can she actually think about France's multicultural, diverse youth population? And can she capture enough of those? That's not clear because that's where her own name, her own party remains toxic for a lot of people. So do you, how do you feel or how do people in the EU feel? Uh, do they feel safe? Do they feel secure? Uh, do they feel comfortable knowing that the EU is going to be successful moving forward or they, do they question its relevance? There's relief definitely at the elite level. I think, though, when you start thinking about everyday priorities that people have, I think people just understand that it's business as usual and they're going to wait and see what are the results. And if those results are growth, more sense of security, dealing with problems such as migration, then there will be increased support and increased legitimacy. If not, the pendulum will go the other way. Where do the solutions lie and can politicians fix this? Can they fix the EU? That's a tough one because they all say they can. They claim that that's their job, those are their ambitions, but we've heard that time and time again, especially from incoming French presidents. Hollande did that before, Sarkozy before him did the same, Mitterrand was talking about the construction of Europe being in France's interests, Italian prime ministers have done the same, but the results, as far as everyday concerns go, aren't really there. As a result, it might be overambitious to expect that suddenly in a five-year presidency there will be radical change. The institutions are set in, the w- in their ways. The policies have a lot of, in a sense, ingrained support for them. It's hard to turn it around, a bit like a super tanker traveling across the ocean. Hmm. Uh... What have the other traditional parties, these were two uh, fringe candidates that weren't expected to win, what, did, what have the traditional parties, the traditional uh, political world, what have they learned from this? How do they explain this? They are still licking their wounds, so it's not clear that they've actually had 
enough time for soul searching. It's not clear that they've had enough time to really have these lessons sink in. There might be some superficial responses already, thinking about name changes, certainly on the center-right side, but there's a real risk of the decomposition of these parties as candidates start declaring themselves in favor of joining Macron's new party to stand for the parliamentary election, and you could be losing a lot of the future leaders of both of those parties to his new formation. As a result, it's a question of how far these parties think cooperation or conflict is in their interest with the new presidency. And I don't think they've made up their minds on what to do about that. Do politicians realize how they got to where they are? That lesson is probably clearer because it seems as if they understand concerns a lot better now than, say, five, ten years ago. They know that security, migration are very much linked in people's minds. They know that promises made about Europe when it comes to enhancing people's prosperity has also flattered the sea. But as we were discussing, it's not clear they have a solution. So they might have identified the problem, trying to generate solutions beyond just presentational niceties about slogans, about new faces, new dynamism. That's much harder for them. Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. Andrew, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.